welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Farrell, and today we are bringing you the recorded audio from the November 16th, 2022 Federal Agent Panel with Professor Yanowich and a few federal agents that Professor Yanowich worked with during his time at the U.S. Attorney's Office. This was a great event, a lot of great discussion about various federal agencies and their experiences with attorneys. We hope you enjoy this discussion. So without further ado, here is the Federal Agent Panel with Professor Yanowich. I wanted to give you an opportunity to meet some of them and to talk to them. Uh, first, Steve Bullitt, who is up in uh, the left-hand corner of your screen, um, is the Chief Information Security Officer, the CISO for the Federal Bank, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Steve was a Secret Service agent for, what, 30 years? Uh, yeah. Spent a lot of time in stairwells, but Steve also uh, helped set up the Secret Service National Forensic Lab. He was the program manager, which means he had worldwide responsibility for the Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force. He was with the Secret Service for many years. As I said, he joined uh, an international uh, cybersecurity firm NTT and was the vice president for threat intelligence for many years before he joined the Federal Reserve Bank in downtown Dallas and has been um, the uh, the CISO there, which is uh, responsible for uh, ensuring that uh, they never uh, make it into the news. Uh, probably the hardest job in the C-suite. Okay, so what you have is, a, is you have current and uh, very two very uh, experienced uh, former federal agents here. And I wanted to ask you guys first question, uh, and I'll just ask a couple of questions and then let you guys ask some questions. But first question I wanted to ask is, um, what drew you to law enforcement? What led you to join your respective agencies? Steve? Well, you know, for me, I, um, I guess it's always been sort of that passion. Even when I was a child, you know, I had thought about uh, law enforcement. I thought that it was something that I always wanted to do. So I started out as a Dallas police officer. I was with the Dallas PD for nearly six and a half, seven years. I was a bomb technician for them, as well as uh, I worked undercover narcotics. And during that time, uh, when I was working in narcotics, I thought that maybe I would go to the DEA as, as far as having a career within federal law enforcement. Um, I knew I was about at that age mark where you hit 30 years old and you really need to make some point in your career what you want to do. So it was either stay with the Dallas Police Department or sort of move on to a federal agency. So, so I was very interested in DEA, FBI, Secret Service, uh, 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 ICE, and others. So, you know, I applied with with, uh, with Secret Service, uh, FBI, DEA, and you know they all kind of hit at the same time. And uh, you know, I was interested in, in each 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 of them, and it kind of just fell for the Secret Service, and I went that way and never regretted it. But um, just um, just I just think it's just a, a sense or a feel that, you know, you're really helping people out. For me, that's always been just a passion for me. I felt like I'm accomplishing something. I think that it's, you know, just for the better good. So just something that uh, was something that was in my heart and uh, something that I wanted to do. And, and, and prayerfully, you know, I fell in the right spot uh, with the Secret Service and, and had a really blessed career. Excellent. Um, you guys? Uh, for me, I kind of had, uh, I navigated several different career paths where initially I went to school for broadcasting. Uh, eventually I found out I was, I was good at computer stuff. So uh, transitioned there and went to consulting um, and then eventually decided that I wasn't really feeling much of a, a drive or mission um, where uh, the public service, I think, aspect of doing what we do is really what keeps me motivated. Um, and so finally, I, I kind of uh, moved over into doing tech work for uh, the FBI's legal attache offices overseas. Um, and then from there, decided that I wanted to have even more of a direct impact on the Bureau's mission and become a special agent from there. So it was a, a long winding road that eventually found its way to law enforcement, but, um, but that's where I felt uh, that I was having the biggest impact that I could, I could have. Uh, for me, I've always been drawn to uh, government service because of the great pay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, so I, I was a Marine Corps officer. I uh, did that for about six years. I uh, kind of made the decision that that wasn't really uh, where my, my heart was. I loved the Marines. I loved everything about it. 
but I wasn't really prepared to do a lot of the administrative work uh, that comes with being an officer. Um, it, it, to be quite honest, somebody uh, kind of raised to me that I could join the Bureau and be a, a field agent for uh, a 20 year career. Uh, and that was extremely enticing. Uh, I love getting my hands dirty. I love being out in the field. Uh, and so I dropped my papers that day, uh, applied to be an FBI agent. And uh, it, it was actually something I wanted to do since I was a kid. And uh, it really just all worked out and I uh, haven't regretted it since. Honestly, uh, um, I didn't really know much about the Border Patrol probably two years or a year before I joined. So why did, how did you wind up at federal law enforcement? Well, uh, I graduated with a degree in environmental science and I had a uh, internship with an environmental consulting firm and it bored me to death. And I had a buddy of mine who wanted to go law enforcement his whole career. And he went, in, went into the Border Patrol at my suggestion because Aunt Janet was hiring at the time back in 96. And he went in a few months ahead of me and came home and told me about it. And it sounded like a, an adventure and off I went. So you started out in Border Patrol, but got switched over time as the agencies merged. Right, exactly. Right. And you wound up for many years, obviously, we worked together when you were a criminal investigator, right? Yes. Okay. Right. So let me ask you guys, what did you like, and anybody can answer, just talk about um, why, would you, why would you urge people, uh, particularly lawyers, to think about uh, what's the best part of the jobs that you did? What is it got you up in the morning? Why do you think this is a job that lawyers should possibly consider as one alternative? Hey, Paul, I'll start out. Um, you know, I personally from a I just think from a, a legal aspect, I mean, there's so many nuances uh, from a cyber perspective that I think, you know, if you have that background in, in law, I think it certainly uh, helps. And, and it's really needed. I mean, the complexities of the Internet today, the complexities of cross uh, national crimes, uh, cross border crimes. Uh, I think that, you know, unfortunately, the country needs it. It needs people who understand the law, who can grasp it, the complexities of it. Um, so and then also, I think for, for those that are con that are considering it, that do have that law background, I think that once they get into it, if they do go into that cyber area, I, I think they're going to find that it's really fascinating because the thing about it is, I mean, um, you know, Cyber crimes borderless, you know, or security problems are borderless. Any solution is going to be borderless, and you know, there again, the complexity of it um, and the way that technology is constantly changing. I mean, it needs some pretty smart people to really help to to combat what our adversaries are doing today. So, I, I just think that um, you know, it's something that I think if people would go in that direction, I don't think they would certainly regret it. I mean, I'd, I'd say for me, it's, it's, it's definitely something different. It's something that's going to be new and challenging every day. And I think Stephen brings up a very good point with uh, just the challenges facing um, law enforcement, uh, especially in the, the uh, realm of cyber. Uh, I think at some point, pretty much everything's going to touch that. And uh, in, at least in my opinion, I, I believe a lot of the uh, the legal framework behind uh, behind cybercrime is uh, behind by five to ten years, and so it's an interesting and fun space to be in. And uh, the world's kind of your oyster when it comes to uh, tackling. That. I, I would piggyback on on what you said, and also add that I think a large part of our job is also making sure we are enforcing the law in the right way, and making sure we do everything you know, as um, correctly as possible so that, you know, when you're thrown up on the stand, you can't get torn down by, you know, not following a specific procedure the right way. And I think, so folks that are in, um, I guess, in the legal, uh, in law school or, or considering, you know, uh, becoming a lawyer, we have, I mean, I had several people in my academy class that were uh, former lawyers and wanted to come over to the law enforcement side. And I think it just works uh, very well for people to understand the law because um, they've been also the people that have been the ones that have been doing cross-examinations or they were former prosecutors, you know, so that, that just having that background, I think also equips you to be a better agent or, or, or however you want to you know, get into law enforcement. Yeah. David, want to add anything? Um, the first thing I'd like to say is that at basically 50 and a half, 
I retired from, from federal law enforcement with 25 plus years. And I left with my pension and um, my, my medical benefits that will follow me for the rest of my life. <clears throat> and, and during the pandemic, when there was ups and downs, and multiple times as the, the economy has, has roller coastered, um, my job is not. And so from an economic standpoint, um, it is a solid position and a solid career. And if you get in early enough, you can, um, you can retire early enough and, and do something else. Go off and teach high school. Um, yes, that, that wasn't planned, but it's been a, it's been a very interesting, very, <laughs> very interesting, um, um, venture so far. Yeah. But, um, aside from that, you know, I'm, I'm a little behind on, on exactly, um, I heard, I keep hearing a lot of remarks on cyber and, and so I don't know if that's the basis of this, but, no. um, I can tell you from a, from a standpoint as a law enforcement officer, um, if you have a prosecutor who ha has been a criminal investigator and understands the roads that we we walk, um, having them sitting next to you, you're you're being side tabled to one of an an, uh, an attorney like that makes all the difference in the world because they get it. And so, to me, um, having that field experience of deal of of law enforcement in the field, if that's what we're talking about, is great. Um, coming from an agency that hires attorneys for um, immigration purposes and whatnot. So we have attorneys that are, are in-house that actually sit embedded with us to help us with legal issues, either based on customs issues or that are pretty complex or immigration issues that can be complex. They were invaluable partners, um, helped us every day. They got into different um, things every day and you know, they still had the same retirement benefits that we did, but they were invaluable. And I think they enjoyed it because they didn't do the same thing every day and they could see through our investigations, the impact they were making. Well, does that, I mean, that, that raises a good question. Things like George Floyd and, and the allegations that police officers, you know, target people on the basis of race or wealth or the fact that you guys are, you know, there are stories about the FBI doing A or B or C or ICE, obviously, in the immigration world and how they how they deal with immigrants. Did that affect you on a day to day basis? I mean, how do you deal with that on a day to day basis? Did you ever find that 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 affected your ability to do your job? I think. And I'll go ahead and answer uh, first. I, I think for me, uh, and I, I think the silver lining in a lot of that is it made you really think about every single action you took and what you were doing and why you were doing it, which is something I hope we can all do uh, in the position that we're in. Um, so I don't want to say that it, it really changed anything, but it definitely gave you appreciation for making sure that every single action you take, you understood why you were doing it and, and what the outcome was supposed to be. And so... Um, I hope that kind of answers it a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. Well, and and, uh, and and I'll let the others answer after me because I want to make sure I, I kind of keep that that thread going. Where you do feel this urge to kind of uh, not get defensive, but defend the people you know that are solid, hardworking people. Um, but I, I think really, you know, and we were talking about how you know I think the the public holds us as public servants to such a high standard and deservedly so. Um, and so I think that's where we just have to be constantly showing endless patience and make sure that we, we leave everyone feeling with the best experience possible that, you know, we're a professional organization trying to do everything by the book and, and make sure that, so when they meet the next FBI agent, or just FBI employee or federal government employee that they don't assume that they are a toxic personality or someone who is going to do things that are underhanded or sneaky or, uh, you know, it's uh, trying to make sure that you lead by example and by your action. What about you guys? Steve, you were at a higher level for a while. I mean, you were program manager and stuff like that. Did you find that that politics or that things in the news affected really how you were running your programs? Or, no, or, not at all. I mean, I think for me, you kind of leave the politics at the door 
And and I say that, you know, the Secret Service is a dual mission agency. When I was there, you know, we had investigations and protection. And so, you know, as an agent, you do a majority of their time working investigations. However, you do have to supplement protection or at times you get pulled onto a protection detail. So like for me, I spent five years on the president's detail. The first president that I had was President Bill Clinton for a year. And then he transitioned out. And then I ha- I was with President uh, George Bush, 43, for four years. And so regardless of how you feel politically, your job is to protect them and leave the politics at the door. So, you know, just over my career being with, you know, John McCain when he was running or Bernie Sanders with him, you know, during that time, you, you just leave the politics at the door uh, and you you do your job and you stay professional because that's what you signed up for. And we all have our biases and political views. But when you're doing these jobs, I just feel like, you know, you really have to leave those things at the door. David, the immigration world, obviously, immigration has such a has such a, uh, um, you know, uh, there's so much surrounding it. And it's in the the papers constantly. And it has such an emotional connection for many people. Did you find that that was something you you ran into when you were trying to do your job uh, investigating people? And how'd you deal with that? Well, um, you know, a lot of people, I says different uh, offices or agencies within it that, that deal with different components of the immigration system. And HSI was an investigative, criminal investigative entity. And then we had ERO enforcement removal operations, which were essentially like a U.S. Marshals type entity that that dealt with um, illegal aliens specifically. And so, you know, it's obviously the immigration realm. We ran into issues where agencies um, honestly didn't want to work with us or they would work with us, but they want to keep it quiet because they didn't want their their constituents to think that they were working with immigration. So, yeah, it happened a little bit and we we would respect it to an extent. But um, for the most part, you know, we have so many different facets of what we enforce um, that immigration is just a small part. And so there's so much going on that if immigration is popular and it, it changed with administrations, to be quite frank, and some, some administrations pressed it and, and it became a priority. And then some administrations discouraged it and it became a lower priority, but there was, there was never a shortage of bad guys. So honestly, it would just sort of shift us in mission priority based on the administration. Um, and that's probably, that's most probably federal agencies to an extent, but like, uh, my predecessor said just a minute ago, the reality is, is that you have a job to uphold the constitution and the laws of the U S and, um, it's not personal. You, you, you're, you behave professionally and in, in whatever capacity you go and the public demands it, your agency should demand it. And, you know, you as a professional law enforcement officer should demand that as yourself question basically, as I understand it, is historically, right, the power of federal law enforcement agencies, particularly the Bureau, but also federal law enforcement agencies has waxed and waned as, as time goes on. And do you have a sense during your careers, did you see that, that the power of the agency was growing, the respect for the agency was growing, um, and at times was diminishing because of public opinion and things? And particularly, did you see that, did you feel that you weren't getting respect for what you were doing at some point, given your interactions with the populace? Either Dave or, or Steve, do you have any? Yeah, well, I'll guess I'll start out. That's a, that's a really, it's a really tough question. I mean, I, you know, certainly not the historian and, and you can go back for a number of years, but during my time there, you, you do see the ebbs and flows. And I do think that we're co- sort of in an environment now that um, unfortunately there's a lot of you know, misinformation, malinformation, disinformation out there. And, you know, it could easily target a, a certain agency, in particular with them being in the news. And, and we all know that uh, all of our various agencies have been in the news for one thing or the other. You know, at times it, you know, I can go way back with the Secret Service from years ago when there was an issue when agents were in, uh, you know, a, a foreign country and, and did things they shouldn't do. And they were all in the news. And so you had the, the, the sediment of the public, you know, uh, seeing negatives towards the agencies, but it, it changed over time. And I just think these things go 
in and out. And it's just sort of the, the nature of a lot of things. You know, law enforcement is just a segment of society, just like doctors, lawyers, anything else. I think you're just going to have popularities that are just going to go up and down. And uh, at least uh, from my end, I just felt like when I was there, that regardless of that, you just had to stay the course. And as David mentioned, you know, you, 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 you know, you work and, and do your job and you do your job for the Constitution and, and what you signed up for. David, did you ever, along those lines, did you ever sense that that people you were dealing with, or even your friends and acquaintances, that their that their um, idea of what you do, or their respect for the the uniform or the badge, uh, and and what it was you were doing every day, did that change as time went on and as headlines changed? You know what? What never and it still has never ceased to amaze me is um, just the lack of understanding of what we are, what we do, what we're capable of. And, you know, I, I jokingly say that, you know, HSI, we have more, we have so much, we have more authority than sense. That's what I say. We have more authority than sense because we cover everything that crosses the border um, in inflow and outflow. And, and uh, you know, everybody just assumes that all we do is immigration. And so it was, sometimes it was trying, but I think just the general ignorance and the um, reliance on what you've seen on TV that I think uh, most federal agents, if someone's interested, interested enough to ask and you're interested enough to tell them, you're, you're educating people constantly on what the real world is like. I, I think, um, I forget who, where I read it recently, but uh, someone once told me, it's like when you're in a public position, um, you know, it's, it's like 10 attaboys will outweigh uh, or, or get outweighed by one oops. You know what I mean? Like where uh, someone slips up, makes a mistake. Uh, it doesn't matter how much good you did that whole week, but that, but that will be what gets publicized. Um, and I think to, to your point, I think we're in a, an era where accountability and, and everything is at a, a pretty much an all time high because everyone has a cell phone camera now. So it's a lot easier to hold you know, public servants uh, accountable for their actions. So I, I think um, it's all the more reason why uh, we, you know, need to be held to a high standard and, and transparency and, and everything. I think it's incredibly important right now uh, to continue to earn the public's trust uh, as, I mean, they, they do trust, as, as, uh, as it's mentioned, we just have a lot of authorities that are granted to us and, um, and the positive examples uh, I would trust would always outweigh the bad uh, when you actually count them out. But mm -hmm. the problem is, is in the media cycle, you get one bad clip that gets played ad nauseum for an entire news cycle, and that will just damage an entire agency, even if it was one person out of 10,000 employees, right? Yeah. So. Well, was add one small thing to that. I, I think that is a big part of it, which is you only really hear a lot about the, the screw ups, right? And you don't get to see across, you know, for us, 56 field offices, uh, you know, multiple resident agencies, overseas, all federal agencies, you don't hear about the good that happens, not just on a daily, but an hourly basis. I mean, um, and it, it really is tremendous the, the amount of work that gets done daily that you just don't hear about. And I think that goes kind of to, to David's point of just the, the ignorance of, of all the things that do happen. Uh, but it's very easy to see the one headline that calls out the one agency and that very quickly creates your perception, you know, for, for the day, for the week, for, for your entire life. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to combat that. Um, but I think it also goes again to kind of the, the, the earlier point of just remaining insulated from it as best you can, because at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the people you work with, the agencies, the partners you make, uh, you know, that everyone's doing good work. Yeah. And I think it would be funny if you saw, law enforcement agencies patting themselves on the back for every positive thing we do. Cause I think it would become laughable, right? Like, you know, if we, if we just tried to broadcast every single win we got, because yeah, it would just, it, it would end up sounding ridiculous that we're trying to, you know, broadcast all of our wins. Um, but yeah, that's the thing is we do our jobs quietly. We're quiet professionals. Um, you know, we try not to make a big deal um, about operations and, and especially on my side where we talk about criminal versus national security you know, there's a lot of stuff I, I just can't tell people uh, that don't have a clearance, right? So it's very uh, interesting in that respect as well, how much 
um, at least in terms of the media and general public understanding of, of what we do day in and day out, um, how to outweigh perceptions of, uh, of one bad example. Um, it, it's, it's very tough. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, I do think we're, we're also just in a different environment as well. I mean, if you look at just the way information spread nowadays, uh, with Facebook and Instagram and, um, you know, Twitter and just all these social media platforms, it's just so easy for things, as I mentioned, just to go viral. And the minute one little bad thing happens, it can easily be spread across. I mean, we're living in different times where if you take that five, six years ago, you know, that just certainly wasn't the case. And uh, it's moving with artificial intelligence and all the things that they're doing right now, machine learning, deep fake, where they're going to, you know, can really uh, change things around. It, it just only is going to enhance that and, and make the problem, you know, even that much more difficult. Um, and, and I'm going to just even throw out, it, it doesn't even matter if the negative um, story is true. And, and for example, you know, I was down in Del Rio um, literally working with the, the horse patrol guys when, when the border patrol horse patrol got um, accused of whipping people. And, uh, you know, we're just now hearing, oh, yeah, we know it wasn't true. But I mean, that news cycle has gone. That agency's paid. Those agents have paid. And it was all based on um, untrue information. That's a good point. And, and, and usually, you know, as we all know, the, the individuals wind up paying the cost um, at some point. But let me ask, since you're talking to a bunch of, of, of perspective of, of current perspective lawyers, um, how did you work in your positions? How did you work with lawyers and and um, did it, do you come away with a real bad taste for lawyers? <laughs> but how did, how, did, how did you interact with lawyers? I mean, obviously, all your agencies hired lawyers as agents, but also to serve, as, as David has talked about, as uh, lawyers available. And that's true in Secret Service and, and true in the FBI and the Chief Division Counsel's kind of offices. Um, how did you guys interact with lawyers and how often do you interact with lawyers? So I interacted... Um depending on the group I was in almost daily. And, you know, it, it kind of depends on the relationship. Um, but if, if you have a good relationship with somebody and they kind of get it, then um, they can become a great part of the team, a valuable part of the team. And uh, honestly, if they don't get it, then you just sort of avoid them and move on. Uh, and what kind, I mean, what guys, what kind of, what kind of advice or what kind of questions do you kind of propound to your lawyers? Well, I'll, I'll go out and say I was very fortunate early on in my career to learn that uh, the bridges you burn do not in fact light the way, but they make it a very, very dark road. <laughs> um, and so at the end of the day, you can have the greatest case in the world, but that means nothing without uh, a, a prosecutor there supporting it. And so uh, that was a challenge, um, and it was it was a, a difficult challenge, but definitely made me appreciate uh, the, the the work um, the work that's done there, and having a good understanding of of why that's so important. And so, um, you know, I think the perception a lot of times is it, it's it's two different sides of the fence, right? You have the uh, you have the the agents doing their job and the lawyers doing theirs, but that that's definitely not the case. Uh, again, no great case. Uh, really goes anywhere without without the other side. And so um, that was a, a hard lesson to learn, but definitely one I took uh, and appreciated very early on. And uh, I definitely uh, revel in those interactions now because they do lead to good conversations and, and they lead to stronger cases, at least from the investigator. Uh, well, I'll just speak from, um, again, my, my, most of my career has been on the, the cyber end of it. And so I'll just speak from my time at the U.S. Secret Service. I mean, when you're presenting a case and you need somebody that's going to help you with the guardrails and you need somebody that's going to help you with, you know, things that you do, whether it's mutual legal assistant treaties or interpreting Rule 41 and search warrants, uh, you need that guidance. You need, you know, um, especially like we work together at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I mean, you need the lawyers that are going to help you through guiding the case. Uh, you know, I didn't go to law school and know, you know, the, the guardrails and you need, you know, to have that relationship as a partnership to to be successful. But not only from a law enforcement, it, I found out as I even transitioned to the private sector 
um, you'll see a lot of these breaches that happen. The first thing that happens, a lot of companies will call is an attorney for attorney-client privilege uh, so that they can help that particular breached uh, 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 victim company through the legal process. So uh, again, I just think the the law uh, and lawyers are just critical uh, to the path ahead. And as I said before, just forming those good relationships ahead of time certainly help. If, if I could just piggyback, yeah. I think that's a really good point. Uh, very early on in my career, when I was dealing with computer intrusions, I oftentimes thought I would be dealing with the CISO or somebody in that capacity. And it's very quickly transitioned to a lot of times the first person I am talking to is the general counsel. And so having that conversation is a very different conversation from the technical to the why it's important you engage with law enforcement. And we're not there to steal your information. We're there to, you know, investigate a crime and we're not there to look at all your records and determine whether, you know, you're above above books. And so uh, that was also, a, you know, a, a learning experience. And I think it was uh, uh, interesting because obviously, uh, you know, we don't necessarily speak a different language, but we have different uh, interests in mind and trying to get those interests to merge where everyone can win uh, was uh, uh, beneficial to all. And and not to not to make the the the, the job out to be uh, sexier than it is. And I think it can be um, the kinds of questions. I mean, you 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 call um, you you guys all have experience calling lawyers in the middle of operations. Right. I mean, lawyers are not just the lawyers for agencies are not just working nine to five with you guys. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I, 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 I you know, I, I don't think we do a lot of our operations without knowing that there's somebody that we can reach out to and ask, uh, you know, the different questions should we find ourselves in that position? I mean, I remember a time uh, was overseas in a very small prison. We had just arrested some folks. Uh, and, and a question came up that, uh, you know, in their country, it was okay to do this, but is that going to affect your case when you bring it back to the U.S.? And I just didn't have a good answer. And while we were doing this, it was, you know, eight o'clock at night in, in, uh, in the country, it was three in the morning and, you know, but the, the AUSA I was working with knew that they might need to be on standby. And it was a, a good thing they did because that definitely impacted the case down the road and how we handled it. And had we not had that call, we might've lost uh, our ability to actually charge one of the subjects. Uh, but again, you know, we don't come up with a lot of that background. And so it's always good to know that that partnership exists and that it's a, it's a willing partnership. And it's a partnership that uh, again, doesn't last between the hours of nine to five. Hmm. You, so we, we, we deal with a lot of Crypto, uh, especially within our investigations, so I think on the investigator side uh, and federal government in terms of looking at it as it uh, relates to investigations, I think we're, we're good on the actual, uh, you know, how do we handle it as, you know, comparing it to actual fiat. Like, I don't think we're, we're there yet, right? And I think there's, you know, there's times where we've come across things where, uh, you know, the example I always give is, let's say we're running an investigation and we happen to seize, uh, you know, 100 Bitcoin. Right. Uh, and then at some point, um, you know, we seize it on that day. It's worth that value. Uh, but for some reason, we need to return it or, you know, we need to, to write out that, you know, what, what's the actual value of that? Right. Because it changes on a daily basis. And. If uh, I have to give that back to someone, well, do I give them back the value that it was, or do I owe them the full value of what was when I when I seized it, right? And, and those are those are hard questions. Those are very difficult questions that greater minds than mine will will will, will answer. Uh, but um, it is it is challenging, and it's a different space, and it's a new and emerging space. But uh, it's uh, you know we're getting there. And in that vein, with any new technology, I think you'll always find the federal government will be a little behind the curve in a lot of sense, but all, it's always an area where we are constantly looking for uh, innovation and new ideas and thinking uh, thinking outside the box in a lot of ways, because I mean, really there was so much that changed when, yeah, when you had currencies that were not no longer really regulated in, 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 at least the relative sense of how you know our other currencies are, right? Um, but also think about how you know how much 
we're looking at issues of end-to-end -end encryption now and other technologies that have become so prevalent and pervasive throughout everyday life that has uh, frustrated uh, law enforcement to a degree, right? Because now communications that may have been easy for me to access are now near impossible without certain tools and techniques, right? Um, and that's why I think, yeah, from the from the federal government side, it's it's going to be something where there's always going to be that learning curve. But we're, yeah, I think we're we're doing the best we can as big of a machine <laughs> as as we are. We are trying to to uh, definitely ramp up in these areas where we can. Steve, I know you, you know, as program manager and, and with the Electronic Crimes Task Force, I know you were dealing with this for years uh, because uh, also you were focused on the Secret Service was often called, was one of the first calls when there was a network intrusion. And obviously, um, you know, viruses and all those things change daily. How, did, how, how were you able to manage that? Well, I think, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, those types of complex crimes, I mean, for me, um, uh, the big aspect of it, a lot of the attacks are not coming from, of course, here in the United States. I mean, they may proxy through a computer here in the United States, but for the most part, it's international. And I think that you have to have those international relationships. I know the FBI does a good job with legates and having people in various offices and the Secret Service ha has some as well, uh, as well as uh, 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 other factions of DHS, ICE and others. But I do think you have to build that relationship ahead of time, Interpol, Europol. Uh, um, when I was in the private sector with the company NTT, so after I retired from the U.S. Secret Service, you know, the thing about getting involved in electronic crimes investigations, the private sector sees that you understand electronic crimes investigations. And so you're somewhat marketable. And so, you know, from there, you know, you really understand it well. And what do they do? You know, somebody offers you ability to retire and gives you, you know, a pretty good, you know, uh, salary. And so you, you go and, and do those things because there's a big need out there for uh, those, that expertise within uh, uh, um, the, the, the private sector. Uh, so I, I just think when you're combating these types of crimes, Paul, I'll just circle back that, you know, they're international. You've got to expand outside of the United States. You have to build those relationships. And you have to be able to, to able to find a way to work across borders if you want to be even somewhat successful. Yeah. You guys, I mean, in, in your investigations, did you guys deal with international? Like, David, did you deal with international crime? I mean, obviously, you're dealing with the border. So did a lot of your investigations deal with foreign countries, foreign? Oh, absolutely. Foreign yeah, absolutely. And we, I mean, we have tons of offices overseas. Um, you know, I would say virtually all of our investigations involved um, foreign entities. And you guys, you guys deal with foreign entities on a regular basis? On the national security side of mind, it's almost exclusively overseas. Since presumably you're not violating <laughs> uh, the laws relating to domestic yes. wiretapping. Um, yeah, I, and same for me. I'd say uh, almost all my investigations uh, have ended up overseas. Uh, all the arrests that I've partaken in that are investigations I've worked have been overseas. And so uh, I, I think that brings up an interesting point, which is you know, obviously we have our, our laws and regulations here in the U.S. that can be completely different in another country. And so a lot of times the difficulty there is merging and meshing the two where I know if we go and do something overseas that one, it's going to be okay with their government. They're going to recognize that as being okay. And they're going to cooperate uh, and, and, and support us in that. Um, and that's where, uh, as uh, Stephen mentioned, uh, you know, the, the FBI legat, so the legal attache offices uh, of which, you know, we have uh, quite a few uh, all over the world um, making partnerships with foreign law enforcement. And so we do a lot of engagement uh, with them. Uh, on a, a, a you know a monthly and yearly basis, uh, and just getting a general understanding of um, you know their 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 methodology, their laws is uh, very very beneficial and almost uh, critical to, to really advancing this. Um, Paul, I, I would throw in one more thing if I could. You know, um, unfortunately, I will say this though. Um, you know, when it comes to the law and lawyers. Um, 
and, and Congress as a whole, we're still operating under laws that were back in 1986. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, you know, uh, uh, USC 1030, uh, some of these uh, laws that were codified years ago do not meet the challenges of today. And, you know, having the lawyers involved, or, you know, is what's really needed to help push and change these laws. And I can only imagine, Paul, I, I guess I would turn around and look to you, your experience as being, you know, your attorney and, 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 and with that fight, you know, um, I, I certainly would think that you would see, you know, the need for some changes to meet the current environment. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's a really good point that um, a lot of the tools that that you guys have uh, and we all had when we were investigating these cases, a lot of those tools, particularly in the cyber world um, and in a lot of international crime, um, are dated. And we have to try and fit some square pegs into some round holes very often or the other way around. Um, and that often uh, produces cases that law students get to read uh, at excessive length in law school. Um, what did you guys, I mean, you guys have dealt with, or do you deal with in your careers, did you guys deal a lot with defense, criminal defense counsel? And what was, what was your, I mean, how did you deal with criminal defense counsel? Did you find that things were very personal and that they, they didn't respect what you were doing or they were going after you personally? Do you guys hate criminal defense counsel because they represent the people you're going after? So, you know, I'll answer, um, from, from my standpoint, it, it, it kind of depended on the realm that I was investigating, to be honest. Um, you know, obviously you recognize that they're looking for that they're playing for the other, other team. So you have to be um, on your toes, but I would say that the majority of defense counsels I, I dealt with, you know, I treated them professionally and they treated me professionally. Yeah. You guys. Uh, so one thing from from my experience of uh, cross exams and, and everything being on the stand was I found that inevitably in my first time or two being on the stands, I would be so uh, involved in preparing for a trial that I'd almost know what my AUSA was going to ask me, that I would kind of know when I was I guess when I was getting when I was going to be asked a question, I know what they're eventually going to be driving at, right? So I'd elaborate on questions with an AUSA that I may not with a defense attorney because I have no idea where they're going. So I'd be a lot more like you know brief and say yes or no and just leave it at that. And so I, I realized I was almost giving an appearance of not being combative, but just not being as cordial with a defense counsel. So I think the more times. I did it. I I, be, I I I realized what I was doing, giving an appearance of of you know not being biased, but just you know being a lot more helpful with my answers. Um, and 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 so, I, but every time I I felt like I've had uh, uh, defense attorneys who treated me professionally um, and never really tried to um, come at me personally or or did anything I took personal, um, because yeah, I think I think they're doing their job the best way they can. And trying to represent their client, and that's you know that's what they're paid to do. I think that's that's admirable. Once I started realizing it, like I I, I came to the conclusion uh, that I just need to let the attorney get there and make the like get the answers out of me for my AUSA, right? Instead of me volunteering information, right? So that's kind of how I modified it. Uh, but that was my personal experience, and I think that was probably just a little bit of uh, nerves the first time being on a stand in front of, you know, courtroom and everything that eventually I realized, you know, it's better to just let them get me there. They will get the answers out of me because they, they know everything we have in evidence anyway. So it's not like I need to assume where they're going, you know, so that's, that's kind of how I adjusted. Yeah. The first, I, I think you guys will probably affirm the very first trial uh, you have um, just makes all sorts of things clear about why paperwork exists as it does and why you file this paperwork and why you have to file things within five days of events and all these kinds of things, all of a sudden make a lot more sense um, when you've been on the stand subject to cross-examination or, or being asked about those things. Uh, very important. What did you guys find to be 
the most difficult challenges in your job? Steve? Uh, difficult challenges in my uh, job when I was a, a federal agency uh, agent. Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I, I just think like any job, I, you know, I don't know. I, I look back on my time with the Secret Services, Secret Service and I had my sort of ups and downs, you know, like any other career, you know, you, you have aspirations of wanting to, to sort of move up and, and, you know, maybe, maybe at times, you know, um, get promoted, um, you know, but with the nature of the job, when I was there, unfortunately, um, you had to travel, uh, you had to move, uh, which could impact your family. So at times at work balance life, um, you know, uh, you have to figure out what is best for you. There's some that, you know, really look at the job and they really want to do whatever they can to get promoted, to move ahead, while others may not do that and may decide, look, my family's more important. Um, this is just not the best way or the best thing for me to do. So at times with these jobs, you have to make a decision on what you really want to do and where you want your career to go. However, it's going to take a sacrifice. Um, you know, if you really want to get that high position, at times you may end up moving four or five times in your career. And where does that put your wife, your kids, your family, your relationships? You know, that's something that you have to decide. So for me, again, it was just, you know, figuring out the best work-life balance um, uh, throughout my career. David, what was most challenging to you? Well, I mean, I think Steve said he was on the money as far as work-life balance. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm late to the game. I have a six-year-old. And part of the reason I retired was because um, me, you know, me being sent out, because we, we do travel a lot. We get detailed a lot. Um, you know, I was spending a lot of time on the southwest border and decided that, uh, you know, when I was eligible for retire, it was my choice. So I, I, I decided to retire so I could focus mm -hmm. on that, that family balance. So that's a big one. I think another one in government service too is in, in law enforcement is it's it, honestly, um, it's easy to get in a negative rut when you're constantly dealing with um, negative perceptions of yourself, not you personally, but your job. And you're, you're dealing with, with um, parts of the society that aren't the best. And so, you know, one of the things I found was that being in a bad mood is a bad habit. And uh, you've got to pay attention, um, you know, where your where your beliefs are and where your health is and where your mind is. And, you know, it, it's as easy as like, hey, you know, Monday morning, where, where are you? Oh, I'm here instead of, hey, it, it's better being here than looking for a place to be. Um, it's just especially in law enforcement, it's kind of easy to to kind of get into that complaining bracket. And if you're not careful, get into a bad mood and being in a bad mood, like I said, it's a bad habit. And sometimes it's tough to get out of. I, I think that's really insightful because, uh, yeah, as you say, David, um, you spend most of your time dealing with people who have chosen to fail to self-regulate, as we all know, right? People who have chosen to do bad things and you start, you can get a very depressed view of humanity uh, and, and of people's uh, 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 grace toward each other. And I'll, I'll say, you know, my experience, the, the, the thing that, that was most difficult for me was um, the federal government is the world's biggest bureaucracy. And, you know, in the middle of a crisis, we move, you can move mountains. I mean, the good news is you can move mountains in a day. But um, when it's not a crisis, sometimes it takes a lot of pair of hands and a lot of pair of eyes to, to get to do things. But that's because, and, and this is, both the challenge, sometimes it's a negative, but on, on the other hand, it's a constant reminder of one of the best parts of the job is um, what you do makes a difference and what you do makes a national difference. And every time you go out there and every time you flash your credentials or you flash your badge, and every time you do something, you are acting on behalf of the United States government. And that's no small feat. And so not only as the as as all the agents have expressed, you have to hold yourself to the very highest standard and professionalism, even when patience is at its very end. But everything you do creates precedent. 
And that is sometimes a real burden uh, to recognize the kind of power, as it were, uh, you have to intersect with people's lives and, and, and the, the difference you can make. Um, it's scary sometimes, given the discretion you have as agents, as gun carriers, or as credential carriers. Um, and uh, But at times, it's also, oh, I got to get approval from this office, and then this office, and then this office. And they're all trying to make sure you don't do something that's just going to be stupid. And boy, have we done some stupid things in our times. Um, but hey, Paul, uh, you, made a, you made a really good point. And I, I just think I see this all the time. And uh, again, I'll, I'll resort back to, you know, cyber crime and cyber breaches. Now, when bad things happen, when bad things happen, the rules go out the door. I mean, I'll, I'll just take it from a, a big picture. You look at 9-11. As soon as 9-11 happened, planes were grounded. You know, a lot of things were curved and changed. The rules went out the door. People wanted to make sure that they were safe. If you look at a lot of these uh, incidents that happened, whether it's a, a breach, you're going to find that before a breach, there's a lot of bureaucracy. During a breach, that's not the case because they're so afraid that, you know, uh, uh, the adversary could be doing much more to their system. The rules go out the door and people are more willing to cooperate, uh, um, aid an investigation, uh, get certain things done. Um, but again, that during that critical time, the rules kind of go out the door. So I only say that because you have a lot of legal there and, and future lawyers there. And so uh, you'll see that in critical times, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but it's just the way people are, that a lot of the rules that and all that bureaucracy goes away during critical times. Yeah, absolutely true. Pent bomb uh, is a perfect example of that. The investigation into 9-11, all that. But um, I, I uh, know we're running over time here and my computer's about to, to die, uh, which is my fault. Um, but so I just wanted to thank you guys, all, all of you guys. Uh, really, it's uh, very much appreciate the fact that you've taken your time on a Wednesday late afternoon to spend some time talking to us about your careers. And there you have it. Another wonderful bonus episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Thank you all for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.